Well, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to serve here as one of the pastors, and it's a huge honor for me uh, to get to serve you uh, in that way. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7. If you've been here at all this year, you've probably caught us in the middle of this series called Be the Church, where we've been looking at the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. And so Paul uh, planted the church in the city of Corinth, uh, which is modern-day Greece, uh, planted it there uh, in Acts chapter uh, 18, I believe, and uh, then later on he moved forward and wrote some letters back to them. And so uh, Paul has a history with the church of Corinth. Uh, the church of Corinth is a very complicated situation. Uh, Paul had a lot of trouble out of them, uh, but also the church of Corinth uh, did a lot of good for the kingdom of God. And so a lot of people always ask me, Billy, we need to get back to the, uh, the early church. And I say, okay, well, which one? Because the Corinthians had a lot of issues, and we've been looking at them throughout this year and looking at all the different things that they went through, and it's very relatable to the church today. Anytime you have a gathering of people, uh, imperfect people who all wrestle with sin, all of us trying to get along and move the mission of God forward, uh, there can be tensions and there can be conflicts that happen within the church, and uh, we shouldn't cower from that. We should actually move towards one another and allow the Spirit of God and the mission of God to unite us. And so it's been cool to look at that and look at how Paul has dealt with this church as they were going through a lot of conflicts and a lot of different uh, things. And so the, today we get the opportunity to look at chapter 7, which is an incredible chapter because uh, thus far in the book of Cor uh, Corinthians, second specifically, we haven't really gotten a lot of good news about the Corinthians. It's been kind of heavy, but this week we get to look at some good news. And so most commentators believe uh, that Paul actually went on a tangent in 2 Corinthians. Uh, the Bible obviously is written by the Holy Spirit, but it's also written by humans carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, for some reason, from chapters 2 to chapter 6, kind of went on just a long tangent about ministry and about the nature of the gospel and kind of what, what it's like to be a minister of the gospel. And then this chapter, it seems like he picks back up with what he was talking about in chapter uh, the beginning of chapter two, where he was kind of distraught because he couldn't find his, uh, his co-worker, Titus. And so you'll, you'll kind of pick up on that as I read, and we can talk about it. So start out in verse two. Uh, we read uh, verse one last week, so chapter seven, verse two. Let's read together. Paul says, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. That's very strong language. Verse four, I've spoken to you with great frankness or directness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. So finally, some good news from Corinth. Paul 
is comforted by what he hears about the people in Corinth by Titus. And so remember the context here. Paul had planted this church in Acts chapter uh, 18. He left, went to Ephesus, heard they were having some issues. He went back on an emergency visit, wrote them a few letters, and then kind of came back. When he went to visit them, his visit wasn't very good. Uh, They did not listen to what he had to say. Uh, They actually opposed him. One guy opposed him, and nobody in the church stood up for him. And that really hurt Paul. And so what Paul decided to do was write them another letter and send his buddy, uh, co-worker Titus, over there to deliver it, right? Great job, Titus. Good luck, buddy. Um, And so he sends him there. Well, over a period of a couple months, maybe even a year, uh, Titus is in Corinth. And Paul was kicked out of Ephesus because uh, there was a riot because of his message and moved up uh, to the northern part of Turkey, to Troas, and then over to Macedonia. And he was expecting to find Titus in Troas, but as we read in chapter 2, he was distraught because Titus never showed up. So you can imagine Paul's mind, mindset at that point. Man, my boy Titus, I sent him down there to try to help the situation in Corinth, and they've killed him. He's dead. I set him up. Man, what am I going to do with myself? You can just imagine the thoughts that are going through his mind as he sends his uh, young coworker that he raised up to go and deal with these uh, people in Corinth that are not the easiest people uh, to deal with. And so he sends them uh, and moves to Macedonia. And guess who shows up in Macedonia to see him? Titus, praise God. So, so Paul at this point is excited because not only is Titus not dead, but he comes with a good message from Corinth. These people that have been wild living and doing whatever they wanted to do and not receiving any correction from uh, the the pastor basically now have turned their life around. They've given it to God and God has began to do a work in their midst. And this is the news that Titus brings, that they in Corinth were repentant. They had turned from their sin and turned to God. They were longing for a right relationship with Paul, which was what he was after all the time. Paul just didn't want to be a pastor that told people what to do. He wanted to be a pastor that his people loved, that, that had a relationship uh, with his people and, and really uh, had a good friendship uh, with them. And so uh, he was excited because not only did he, were they repentant in Corinth, but also Titus came back fired up. Like Titus was encouraged that the Corinthians, when he found them, he had heard all the stories from Paul, but these folks had gotten right with the Lord and God was really working Uh, in their midst. And so Paul's love for the Corinthians here shines bright. You can tell how much pride he had. Like he knew the potential of the church in Corinth if their heart was right with Jesus because it was great and and their potential was great. And he makes some incredible statements. He literally says, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Like, Like I'm ready to live with you or die with you because I love you so much. He says, I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged by you. My joy when, you're, when your heart is right with God knows no bounds. You can just see how excited he is. It amazes me how quickly Paul goes from frustrated to encouraged by this group of people. It's kind of cool to see that. But in the Christian faith, isn't that the right way to be? Because some, some people sometimes will frustrate the heck out of you. And you can tell them until you're blue in the face, hey, this is not right. You should not do this. This is not right with God. This is not gonna be right with the people around you. I love you. I'm trying to help you. Please do not do this. Turn to God. Follow God. And over and over, they cannot listen. And just kind of sin gets us all where we don't wanna hear anybody. We just kind of wanna do what we wanna do when we wanna do it. And so, but as soon as a person turns back to God, 
it's like a new person appears, right? And so this is how Christianity a lot of times works. And so verse eight, he goes on to say this. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, he's referring to 1 Corinthians and the painful letter, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. So Paul wrote, when he wrote 1 Corinthians and the painful letter, they were pretty harsh. They were pretty direct. It was confronting them about a lot of sin in their life. And so it was kind of hurtful to them. But listen to verse 9. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by all of this, we are encouraged. And so Paul is just, this is, it's crazy because if you've been following along with us, this is completely different language than we've seen throughout Corinthians. Paul has been to the point where he was ready to pull his hair out with this group of people, but he loved them well and finally, he gets a report that they've turned back to God. And he's so excited with this. And he goes in and starts talking about repentance and how uh, there, he, he differentiates between two types of repentance. He calls it godly sorrow and he calls it worldly sorrow. And he wants us to understand that there's a big difference between these two things. And it's important for us to understand. This is probably the best teaching on repentance that we get in the entire Bible. And now I don't know what you think when I say the word repentance because the word repentance gets a bad connotation in a lot of, lot of ways. And so when you think repentance, you may think of a negative thing, right? So a guy yelling at you saying, you need to repent or you're going to hell. Repent because you're a sinner. Repent because you're this. You may think of like the hellfire and brimstone version of repentance. That's not all wrong because, yes, we need to repent out of our sin. But when you look at the word repentance in the Bible, it's actually a very encouraging term. Like, it's, it's not fun to walk through, but it is a very much a big part of the Christian faith. Like, we need to learn what repentance is and what it's not. And so he differentiates godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, he says, leads to repentance and life. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to death. So he says, godly sorrow produces life change. Like they literally became different people because they had godly sorrow and repented. It produces fruit. And then he goes through the fruit. He says, listen, you guys were walking in sin, didn't care about the things of God. Now you're earnest for God and the things of God. Your, your zeal has been renewed for God. You're eager to make things right with those that you sinned against. Your uh, hatred towards sin has been renewed. You don't walk in sin anymore. Your, your fear, he calls it alarm, has been renewed because on the backside of repentance, there is a renewed fear of God and, and, and we live in the awe of God and, and his forgiveness and what he's done. And then he says, not only that, but now you have longing and concern 
uh, for people and for the people of God and the things of God, and you're ready to obey. He says you're filled with readiness to serve God and obey no matter what. And then, whereas worldly sorrow doesn't produce that fruit at all. Like, it doesn't produce any of that. It doesn't produce transformation, and ultimately, it leads to death. It's more of a worldly mindset. There's no turning to God involved in it. You just kind of feel sorry because somebody called you out, or you feel sorry uh, because you got caught doing something wrong. It's more a sorriness uh, based on, I have consequences for these actions, and I'm sorry that I've caused harm to this person, or man, I really am sorry because I don't want to receive the punishment that these things are going to bring on my life, but ultimately, there's no desire to change. There's just a sorriness that you got caught, right? There's, there's a sorrow that you have been caught, and this, the Bible says, is not true repentance. Paul wants us to understand that there's a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, but in Corinth, what we've seen is godly sorrow. Repentance has happened there, and it's evident because they're different. They've changed. They, they're back on track in their relationship uh, with the Lord. And because of this, Paul's encouraged and confident. He even says, I'm fully confident in you now, which is an incredible statement. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, in addition to our encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed, underline that, refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you is true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad, and I can have complete confidence now in you. So Paul's not only excited that the Corinthians have repented, He's also fired up because Titus is fired up. Titus has been refreshed. This is his boy that he saw, thought he sent to the, the bunker taking grenades, and Titus has come out alive, and he's flourished. Like, he's flourished in his ministry. Uh, the Corinthians have encouraged him. You can almost think of, put yourself in the meeting room when he finally finds Titus in Macedonia. He was looking for him in Troas. He was kind of distraught that he couldn't find him there. So finally, he finds him. They sit down together in Macedonia, and Titus comes with this report, and it's just an exciting time for them. Paul was distraught because he hadn't found him, but now keep in mind uh, that, that he sent him into a tough situation, and he came back with some incredible news uh, for him. And so uh, this is how we should respond. Like when people uh, take next steps, when God is working in the lives of our brothers and sisters it should excite us. Like, we should be fired up. This is why when we do baptisms here, we call it a celebration. You know, the church for far too long has felt like a funeral home. And so, yes, there should be reverence for God in the church, but ultimately, when people in the church, your brothers and sisters, are taking next steps or being saved or being baptized or are literally reconciling with their wives when they're reconciling with their husbands, when they're uh, literally joining small groups, becoming heart and soul uh, with God's church, when they're uh, praying for people and the people come into the church, we should celebrate. Like this should be a big deal and we should be fired up. There is something wrong when we cheer louder at a football game than we cheer when an eternal decision for Christ is made. That makes sense? And so because football will wash away, baseball will wash away, 
in eternity, what matters are the things of God. And so when we have brothers and sisters that are taking next steps in their faith, we wanna be a group of people that celebrate, just like Paul and Titus are doing here. So what I wanna do with this, a couple of things. I wanna show you three things in this passage that I think will be helpful for you in your relationship with God and that I think we see. The first is the heart of Paul. Uh, I've told you throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, when you read 2 Corinthians, it is the most uncut view of Paul that we get. I mean, he is very transparent, he's very honest, he's very emotional, uh, it's like he lets his guard down and he just communicates his heart in a way that he never has. And so I wanna learn from that and look into that. Secondly, I wanna talk to you about the nature of repentance. I wanna talk about this word repentance. What is it? Uh, how do we know how to do it? Like how can we walk in it if it leads to refreshing? Then how do we as Christians walk in this lifestyle of repentance? And then lastly, I wanna talk to you about the refreshment of community. We see that Paul is refreshed here in his relationship with God and God uses others to refresh him, right? And so it's Titus, it's the Corinthians, it's other people that come into his life with good news that encourage Paul even when he's downcast. That word is literally depressed. Like when Paul's at a tough spot, who are the people that bring the comfort of God? It's his community around him, and we also need that because we will all be discouraged if we're not, uh, if we haven't already. All right, so let's talk about this. The first is the heart of Paul. Did you, did you kind of see Paul's language as he was talking in the first few verses? Listen to him. He says, make room for us in your hearts. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have conflict on the outside. I, I literally, he says, we've had no rest. We've been harassed at every turn, and I have fears going on within me. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted me by the coming of Titus. And so his heart just flows out in this passage for a couple reasons. First, uh, it flows out because you can see his desire for the people of Corinth. Like if you think about Paul as a minister, which we've already learned in the book of Corinthians, just because Paul's a preacher doesn't mean we can't relate with him. Because in the new covenant, when we're all saved, we receive the Holy Spirit and we're all ministers, Right? And so we're all called to live for God and help other people see Christ and teach them and, and walk alongside of them. And so here we can learn from Paul and his desire for the Corinthians because listen, he says, open your hearts to me. Like Paul's just not interested in telling people what to do. He's interested in growing relationships with people. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you have a relationship with somebody, when somebody knows that you truly love them and care about them, they listen to what you say a little bit better. And so as a Christian, as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel, as you and I both are, it's our job to love people and to build relationships with people and to open our hearts to people so that we can influence them for Christ. Verse three, he says, I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would literally live or die with you. Paul just has this deep desire to see the Corinthians walk with God. He really does. And he has this deep willingness to do whatever it takes to see them walk with God. And don't, don't you wanna be this type of person? Like as a Christian, don't you wanna be the type of person that has the heart to truly see people walk with God? Like this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel is that we long for people to walk with God 
and we're willing to love them and sacrifice for them so that they can walk with God. We're willing to do whatever it takes. If it takes me sacrificing what I wanna do to be with them, I'm willing to do it because ultimately what I care about is that they are walking in a reconciled relationship with Jesus. It's important. And because of that, when they repent, when he hears that they've turned back to God, Paul is fired up. Like he is so excited because his heart is that they would be walking with God. And so the question you and I must ask is, do we have this heart? Like do we desire for other people to walk with God the same way Paul does? Are we willing to sacrifice the same way he is? Do we rejoice when people turn back to God? You know, for far too long, the church has like gossiped about people. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, we'd rather talk about the bad things that people do than step in and try to get them back to the good thing of following Jesus. And that's not what the church is here to do. The church is here to come alongside of people and bring them back to God. The second thing we see is we see Paul's desire for Titus. And I love this. If you're a leader in the room, attention up to this. Titus is Paul's co-laborer. He's his friend. Almost think of him as like an assistant. He's his brother in Christ. And Paul was distraught over the situation with Titus. Like he knew Titus, but Titus was kind of like a, like a, a young like a young pastor that he was like, man, I think he's ready, but I don't know if he's ready. But hey, these guys are either gonna break him or uh, he's gonna sink or swim. Hey, Titus, head on over to Corinth and see what you can do with these cats. And he got there and I can just see Paul when he doesn't show up in Troas, it's like, they killed him. He's been crucified. I just lost one of my best guys. Like, I can't believe I sent him there. He wasn't ready. Like, God, Lord, why in the world did I send this guy here? And so that's on his heart. He's literally just cost a dude his life. And then he shows up in Troas, and Titus shows up, and Titus is not beaten. He doesn't look physically like tormented. He literally is fired up because his report is that the Corinthians have turned to God. And they've turned to God with him being there on behalf of Paul in ministry. And Paul, on the side, if you think back, Paul went to Corinth, and what was Paul not able to do in Corinth? He couldn't turn them back to God. He was actually made things worse in a lot of ways. And Titus shows up, and my boy does work and leads them back to the Lord. Not that his, his credit, but the Spirit of God in him lead them back to the Lord, and he was able to do something that even Paul couldn't do. And what does Paul do? Does he respond like, man, what did, did you do something wrong? No, he's fired up because literally someone that Paul led to Christ is now being empowered by the Spirit of God. He's empowered them, sent them out, and he's doing even greater things for the kingdom than Paul could do. And this is the picture of leadership. This is why Paul was such an incredible leader, is that it wasn't all about him. It, it, and, and here's the reality of this. The greatest impact that you and I may have in the kingdom of God may not even be our own ministry. The greatest impact that you and I may have in the kingdom of God may be the person that we're investing in now that God raises up to do something incredible for the kingdom of God. And this is what our kids' ministry is all about. I mean, we want to partner with you as parents to raise up the next generation of disciple makers. Literally the next Billy Graham may be in the ones and twos class right now, I don't know. He may be sitting next to you. 
And at the end of the day, that's how you need to think, is like, who are you investing your life? Think about how Jesus did ministry. Jesus spoke to the crowds, but if you study his life, the majority of his life was spent with 12 individuals. And what did he do with those 12 individuals? He led them to Christ, taught them how to grow in their relationship with God, and then he sent them out to do work and do ministry and make disciples of all nations, and we're literally sitting in this room because of that. And so what would happen in mine and your life if our desire and our effectiveness and our strategy in ministry began to transition to less of, uh, less of a uh, let me speak in front of a lot of people and more of a, hey, who's in my life that I can begin to influence and begin to disciple and raise them up to go and do ministry for the kingdom of God? The greatest use of your time as a Christian will be the time you spend investing your relationship with God into another person. So let's be that. And then thirdly, we see Paul's personal transparency. I love this. Paul literally is uncut. I told you, he goes from feeling accused to sorrowful to joyful to encouraged and every emotion in between. He literally says, I was harassed at every turn. I had no rest. I had conflicts going on on the outside. I was fearful within but God. And you're talking about Paul. This is the apostle Paul. He's an absolute stud in the faith. And here we get to see him at a very transparent and vulnerable place in need of encouragement and comfort. And God provides it. And this is a beautiful picture of an an incredible reality for us. And the reality is this. No person is beyond the need for encouragement. No person. Doesn't matter how long you've followed Christ, doesn't matter how much you think you've known or don't know, literally no person in this room is beyond encouragement. Like we need, this has to be what the church is about. Like we can't tear people down, we have to encourage people. That makes sense? Doesn't mean we don't speak truth, it just means, hey, God wants to use you to encourage the faith of another believer. Like that's what he wants to do in his church. We all need encouragement. We all need relationships that provide this encouragement because we will all face conflict and fear like Paul says, but when we do, we need to be able to be transparent about that the same way Paul does, and then we need to invite others from the outside inside our lives to help us walk through it because listen to me, God's comfort and encouragement almost every time in the Bible comes through others. It doesn't come directly, like it doesn't, sometimes you may sit in a prayer room and pray with God and walk out in courage. That's great, and that can happen, but a lot of times in scripture, when we see a person beat down from ministry, a lot of times it comes through another. Another great example of this is Paul, right after Paul's salvation, remember he was blinded, didn't have any help, didn't really know what was going on, didn't know where he was going, they take him to a place in Damascus, and a guy shows up, Ananias. And so Paul's, or God's comfort and God's encouragement for the life of Paul, who, I mean, praise God, Ananias had the faith to go to basically lead Osama bin Laden to Christ. I mean, my God, just think about his faith. And so he shows up, encourages him, strengthens his faith, and sends him out. And so again, you see it come through an individual. So the question for us is, do we, are we encouraging people? Like, are we transparent about what we're walking through and inviting other Christians into our life to encourage us in our walk with the Lord. It's important 
that we do that. We can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul in that, in that realm. Secondly, I wanna talk to you about the nature of repentance. Again, repentance is one of those words that has a bad connotation, and this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible to learn about repentance from. It's actually very, very uh, thorough in its explanation of what it is. Here Paul teaches us again that difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when we just feel bad about our sin. We, there's a feeling of sorriness, but there's, there's no God in it. It's just kind of a feeling or an emotion or we're upset because we got caught about something or called out or the consequences that are coming from it. Whereas godly sorrow uh, produces a desire to turn to God. Like that's the difference. Keyword, godly sorrow. So it's we're turning to God in our sorrow. Repentance is a change of direction. It's literally uh, the best way I know to explain it is think about uh, you're walking one way and when you repent, you turn 180 degrees and walk back the other. It's a military term. And so for us in the Christian faith, we're walking 100 miles an hour towards sin and we say, I don't wanna live for myself anymore. I realize I'm in sin. God, this is not your best for my life. So I'm turning and I'm turning back to God, taking our eyes off of sin and putting it on God. And we begin to move in the direction of God. This is the process of uh, repentance. This is what the Bible teaches repentance actually is. And it's very important for us to understand this. Repentance all the time gets a bad rap. There's a lot of misconceptions about it. But in scripture, listen to me. If I could do one thing for you today, repentance is a great thing. It is an encouraging thing. It is a necessary thing. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, it will come through the process and the pathway of repentance in your life. This is applicable for all of us. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, says our whole life as a Christian is the practice of repentance. It is the pathway to our salvation. You're, you're saved through repentance and faith. It is the pathway to our joy. God says that he'll restore our joy. It's the pathway to abundant life, back to God's design for our life. It's the pathway to growth and godliness. All of these things come as we embrace the process of repentance. I love Acts chapter three, where uh, Luke tells us that literally repentance leads to refreshing. I don't know any Christian that doesn't need refreshing in their life, right? Well, if you wanna be refreshed, it comes through repentance. Psalm 51, David himself says, repentance restores the joy of our salvation. I was explaining to somebody after the first service, it's, it's that picture of communion. Like when we come face to face with God and realize that our sin put him on the cross, like literally he sacrificed himself for our sin and it gets personal, then it renews our belief in the gospel and our need for the gospel and really uh, renews and restores the joy of our salvation. It's kind of like getting saved again. Obviously we can't get saved again, we're saved once, but over and over in the process of sanctification, of growth, we, we get this re restoring of our salvation, the joy of it over and over. It's how we return to God's design for our life. That's what repentance is. Not a bad thing, it's an invitation into God's design for your life. When you turn from sin and turn back to God, the abundant life is with God. Like this is why repentance and faith in the Bible always go hand in hand. In order to repent, I must believe that God's way is better than my way. 
If I don't believe that, that my way is not as good as God's way, I will never turn from my sin. This is why you preach and you talk about and you look at God and you think, my abundant joy, my abundant life comes from following Jesus. And this is why Jesus preached it in John 10, 10. He came, the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to bring life and bring it to the fullest. And so when we turn back to God, that's what we get in it. It's what keeps us humble and close to Jesus. There's nothing more humbling than recognizing that we've turned away from God and that God's inviting us back to himself. It's the great healer in our vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationships with others. Listen to me. In marriage, if you're married in the room, so many people that are married feel like they need counseling. I'm not against counseling. I think counseling is great. There's a lot of practical help with that. But ultimately, the number one thing that is needed in marriages today, including mine, is repentance. Because when we quit focusing on, hey, I need to go to a counselor where this counselor can tell the other person what's wrong with them, and that's gonna make my marriage better, and we can back off and say, no, Lord, what is it in me that's causing conflict in my marriage? And you get two people that begin to look inward, that's what heals a marriage. And so repentance is what is the great healer in marriage. Now, I'm not against counseling. I'm just saying if we start there, it would, it would solve a lot of issues without counseling. Honestly, there is, not, there is not many things more important in the Christian life than repentance. And so I wanna give you a little more practical help when it comes to living this life of repentance. What does repentance look like? I wanna give you a pattern of what this looks like. Four steps of repentance. This is kind of how it plays out in the Bible and in our lives as we think about uh, repentance. And if we're growing as a Christian, this should be happening often in our life. And so it's uh, kind of like, I mean, the best way I know is to compare it to a football game, right? So if you play a football game, let's just take Alabama. They're supposed to be great. They didn't play great last night, right? And so they almost got beat. Yeah, they had a backup quarterback, but at the end of the day, they didn't play great. So when they watch the film, there's gonna be a lot of things that they need to correct, right? A lot of things that they did wrong. And so what happens is a good coach is gonna show them what they've done wrong, and he's gonna try to help them learn how to fix it so that they can play better and be a better team. It's the same thing. God uses repentance as a pathway to grow us as a believer. He's gonna help us identify what's wrong and what we're doing wrong and where we're walking out of his design. He's gonna show it to us. He's gonna show us that he died to pay for it, and then he's gonna encourage us and help us walk into his designs. That's, that's the best way I know to think about it in a worldly standpoint. So let me give you these four things. The first is awareness. Awareness of sin is where repentance starts. Awareness of sin. As a Christian, the closer we get to Jesus, the more aware of sin we will become. Like we will become more aware of our sin uh, the closer we get to Jesus. We see this throughout uh, the Bible, Isaiah 6. When Isaiah comes in the presence of God, uh, he falls to his knees and says, I'm a sinner. Peter, when he's in the boat with Jesus, he falls to his knees and says, God, I'm a sinner. John in Revelation, this is the sanctified John after the two letters, after his uh, gospel and the letters of 1st through 3rd John and Revelation, right? So he's pretty sanctified. He's, he's older at this point. He's done a lot. And when he gets in the presence of Jesus, guess what he does? He falls to his knees and he says, I'm a sinner. 
God, and I do not deserve uh, to be here. And so what we can learn is as we move closer and closer to Christ, we will see our sin more. I had this all jacked up. Like think of a kid that had just gotten saved, throw him in the midst of a Southern Baptist church where everybody acts like they have everything together and says, and I'm like, okay, I'm not like these people. I got a lot of stuff going on in here, but it seems like nobody else has anything going on here. At least nobody's talking about being jacked up. And I'm like, where do I go? What do I do with this? Do I just not talk about it and just act like everything's okay? Oh yeah, that sounds good. That's what everybody else is doing. And then you begin to walk as a superficial Christian. I'm not hating on all Baptist church. I'm just saying that was my experience with it, right? So, and listen, and, 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 and it's opposite. Like scripture literally teaches the closer we move to Christ, the more we begin to see just how much sin has hold in our life. It's incredible. I thought I was jacked up when I got saved. I didn't realize how deep sin ran in my heart. Now that I study God's word every day, now that I'm growing in my relationship with Jesus, I see more and more clearly how much of a hold sin has in my heart and in my thoughts and in my life. It, I literally cannot give you any other scripture than Romans 7 where Paul himself is battling this thing out with sin after he's saved and he literally says, I, I don't understand what's going on in me. I keep doing the things that I do not wanna do. I know they're not right, but I continue to want to do them. I find in myself there's sin at work in me and God at work in me. How do I deal with this? And he gets to Romans 7, verse 24, and he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what I've figured out. Apart from Christ, I am not a good person. Apart from Christ, no one is a good person. But specifically, I can only speak from my own experience. I'm selfish apart from Christ. I'm prideful apart from Christ. I'm lazy. I hate authority. All I think about is myself. I don't love others sacrificially like Jesus. I overvalue the things of this world. I'm quick to fall into idolatry and believe the lies that the enemy throws at me. And that's who I am apart from Christ. And that's what I wake up every day and have to fight against. And you say, Billy, well, you're being hard on yourself. No, I've just figured out what I have to fight. And the more you follow the Lord, the more you're going to figure out what your tendencies are when you take your eyes off of Jesus. And it doesn't just need to be you, it needs to be you and others that help you fight. And here's the reality, you cannot win a battle if you don't know what you're up against. And so we have to understand, I ask God every day to make me aware of my sin, and here's the good news. He will answer that prayer. He will answer it. And the Lord also puts his spirit inside of us to help us, and he's placed us in community and accountability. He places around us to help us. He's given me his word to rebuke me and correct me and teach me and train me, and praise God, he never gives up on me. But I have to begin to embrace this process and ask God to make me aware of this sin in me that's keeping me from shining the light of the gospel to others and living in the design that God has. That's the first, awareness of sin. The second step is brokenness over our sin. So it's not just enough to be aware, we have to be broken over 
our sin. Brokenness is a good thing in the Christian faith. Write this down. One of the most important things about us is how we respond to the sin in our lives. One of the most important things about us as a Christian is how we respond to the sin in our lives. As a Christian, the question is never, is there sin in my life? 1 John 1, 8 and 10 makes that very clear. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The question is not, is there sin in my life? The question is, how am I responding to the sin in my life? And here's what I figured out. There's four natural responses. I say natural. Three natural responses to sin when it's exposed in your life, and then there's one that's biblical. So the first thing that happens is when, I, when God exposes sin in my life, there's three things that start to happen. These are the first three. One, I like to deny it. God, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Secondly, I like to justify it. It's not that bad. Like, come on, God, like, you seen what some of these other people are doing? Or three, I like to blame shift it. It's not my fault. God, he wouldn't have done that, or she wouldn't have done that, or this wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have done that. And, and honestly, if you're honest, those are probably the same three responses that come naturally to you. When God reveals sin through his word, somebody calls you out, whatever it is that exposes sin in your life, the natural three things to do are deny it, justify it, and blame shift it, and they're all wrong. In that moment, how God wants us to respond is brokenness and repentance. Because you see, true repentance always flows from a place of brokenness. Brokenness before God over our sin. As a Christian, sin is really personal. Once you become a Christian, sin should be very personal. That's why I love the song we sing, Amazing Grace, that rendition where it talks about literally looking at Jesus on the cross. And as you look at Christ on the cross, as a Christian, you should connect that it's your sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so now, as a Christian, with that knowledge, when I willingly walk in sin, it should break my heart because I know what that sin did to my perfect Savior. And that's what happens when the Spirit of God comes inside of us. It hurts us that our sin breaks the heart of God. It hurts us that the sin I committed was the very sin that crucified Christ. It breaks me when I realize that I've trampled on the grace of God. Romans 6 is very clear. Should we continue to sin that God's grace may abound? No. We turn. We're dead to sin and alive to Christ. And that is how God wants us to deal with sin in our life. I want you to listen to David, Old Testament David, Psalm 51. Uh, after being confronted in his sin with Bathsheba. Listen to how he responds. This is literally his journal. If you want to know what it looks like to repent, this is one of the best chapters to, to read. Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, David wasn't just crying because he got caught. And what he got caught doing was, was very, very tough. I mean, most of us maybe have done, committed adultery, but we've not murdered the husband of the person we committed adultery with. This is what David had done. He wasn't crying because he got caught. David wasn't just upset because he was facing consequences for his actions, which he would face consequences. David wasn't just distraught because his sin caused harm to others. David was a broken man. He was broken before God. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was broken first and foremost because he had sinned against God. Now, did he have some issues he needed to resolve with Bathsheba and Uriah? Absolutely. But his repentance started with brokenness before God. And this is important for us to understand because we like to just move past sin. We like to just think, oh, well, God forgot. He forgave me and forgot it. So let's move forward. But here's the issue. Brokenness is a key part of repentance. Like we have to deal with brokenness when it comes to repentance. But just because we're sorry doesn't mean we've repented. Like just because we're crying doesn't mean we're truly sorry and we've truly repented. Like brokenness before God is different. Brokenness before God leads to repentance. Here's a question. Have you gotten to a place where you are broken, broken before God over your sin. Because that's where true repentance begins. It's turning from our sin and turning to God. It's not just feeling sorry about what we've done. It's understanding that we've sinned against God and allowing that to break us. Did you see in verse nine where Paul literally tells the Corinthians that God intended you to be broken? Like when he wrote that difficult letter and confronted them in their sin, he says, God intended for you to be broken. However God chooses to reveal our sin, he intends for that revelation to break us. And we should know that, and we should be broken over our sin. Not just aware, not just broken, but repentance also involves, number three, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Confession's another word that gets a bad rap. Maybe in the Catholic church, uh, we, we think of it that way, or maybe we think of confession as an as a embarrassing thing. And listen, it can be uh, awkward. It can be very uh, awkward. On the count of three, uh, if, if you're with me, on the count of three, uh, I want you to shout the last two sins that you've committed. Ready? One, two, three. Nobody, right? So it's awkward. You, nobody likes to talk about sin, especially in front of a big crowd, in front of a a lot of people, and that's important. But here's the truth. Sin flourishes in the dark. Like when we don't talk about sin with God and talk about sin with others, it literally flourishes in the dark. So here's the reality. We must fight it in the light. Sin flourishes in the dark, so we must fight it in the light. And that's what confession is all about. It's about bringing our sin into the light, but it's not just about making God aware of a sin that he already knew about, because God knows everything. True confession leads to repentance. It's literally an action step towards repentance. Confession involves talking to God, and confession involves talking to others, and both are equally important. Confessing to God. First John says, if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just, 
to forgive our sin. Lord, this is exactly what I've done. I'm sorry. Change me. Help me. I don't want to be this person that I am. And then allow God's word to meet us where we are. And then confess to a brother or sister in Christ. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You don't have to confess to everybody. You don't have to talk to everybody. You just gotta find one person, one true brother or sister in Christ that you know loves God and they love you and they love God more than they love you. And when you find that person, you ask them, hey, I need to tell you what's going on in my heart and what's going on in my life. Confess to them, ask them for help and accountability. Because listen to me, until you tell someone what's going on and the sin that you're struggling with, you are not serious about repentance. Scripture teaches this clearly. We cannot fight sin in the dark. And a side note, if someone comes to you to confess sin, don't be passive. Like, don't just kind of take it with a grain of salt and be like, yes, okay, everybody struggles with sin. It's not a big deal. No, if they're coming to you and confessing their sin, they're asking for help. So like, step in, help, ask good questions, memorize scripture with them, read the Bible with them, talk to them about it. Listen, don't go to the opposite end and be aggressive and be like, oh crap, you struggle with that, what a loser. Like, no, no. like you arrogant bigot. Like you struggle with sin and the reason we all struggle and we're in the same struggle is so that we can come alongside of others and struggle with them and hold them accountable and fight sin in the light with them. And this is the difference in life and death and we need to understand it. And then the fourth part of repentance is life change. This is the fruit of repentance. If true repentance takes place, transformation will happen. Godly, God literally transforms our lives through the process of repentance. It's literally the, the process of transformation. It's a process that Jesus uses to help take our eyes off of sin and put them on God. And when you do that, it absolutely is transforming. My pastor growing up used to say it this way. He said, the secret to a good no is a better yes. So if you want, if you want to say no to sin, you better have a better yes. Because if you don't have a better yes, then you're going to say yes to the best yes that you think, which is sin, when you're not walking with God. But when you believe God's better, you'll say yes to God and say no to sin. Through repentance, God renews our joy. He refreshes us with the gospel. He fills us with his spirit anew. He changes us. He literally changes our heart, our mind, and our actions. I mean, Paul goes through a list with the Corinthians, and he says, listen, look what's happened in Corinth because they've truly repented. Literally, they're now eager for the gospel. They're earnest to do the things of God. They, they hate the sin that they committed. There's a healthy fear of God among them. They're longing and concerned and ready to obey whatever Jesus has to say. Now remember, this is the same Corinthians that was driving Paul nuts because they were living in sin. And now they've repented and they've turned to God and they're changed, they're different. And this is exactly what repentance does in our life. And listen, man, when, when true repentance happens in someone's life, it is amazing to watch God work in their life. Like, when you're in it and you're the one that's in repentance, it kind of stinks. 
But when you get to watch brothers and sisters around you repent and watch God take this process of awareness to brokenness, to confession, to repentance, to life change, man, it is incredible because some of our greatest ministry is done through the process of God leading us out of the sin that we were caught up in. And it is absolutely incredible. I mean, even think, here's the best story. The, probably the most famous example of this in the Bible is Judas and Peter. Have you ever thought about this? Judas and Peter essentially committed the same sin. They both betrayed Jesus, right? But the only difference is in how they responded to that sin in their life. Because they both, listen, they both felt sorry that they did what they did. They both were aware that what they did was sinful. But Judas never turned to God and ended up committing suicide. It led to his death, like literal death. But Peter denied, he was aware of it. He was broken over his sin. He felt sorry over his sin and he turned to God and God restored him and then he became the rock that literally thousands of people came to the Lord and built God's church in an incredible way. All because of one thing. He turned to God and he did not. Both had sin in their life, but it was in how they responded to the sin in their life. And so the question for you and I is, who, who does our heart reflect more? Like Jesus or does it reflect, does it reflect Judas or, or Peter? Because are, are we responding to our sin by turning to God or are we responding to sin by running from God? And the last thing is the refreshment of community. This is probably my favorite, maybe my favorite part of the whole passage. Did you notice the language that Paul continued to use throughout this section? You go back and read it. I don't have time right now, but he uses the words refreshed and encouraged and comforted and refreshed and encouraged and comforted. He said, I, Paul, was refreshed by Titus. And then he said, Titus was refreshed by the Corinthians. And then he says, the Corinthians were refreshed by Titus. And there's a big truth in this passage that we cannot miss. And here's what it is. One of God's greatest means of encouragement, refreshment, and joy in your life is Christ-centered relationships. Like one of the ways that God wants to encourage you, refresh you in your faith, and bring joy into your life is through Christ-centered relationships. And I'm telling you, do not miss out on this. Community is hands down one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. I mean, think about it. Paul was downcast, but God comforted him through the coming of Titus, community. Titus was probably scared to death going to Corinth, but God comforted Titus through the repentance of the Corinthians, community. The Corinthians were straying from God in their sin, but God sent community in Titus to help bring them back to God. So literally, no matter where you find yourself today, downcast, fearful, straying from God, whatever it is, God's answer for you is biblical community. Like, this is where we experience God like we've never experienced him before. You know, Jesus is no longer here on earth. He went to heaven. But the way we experience his presence is now through the spirit of God in one another. And so to say yes to God and not live life in community is to basically say, hey, 
I love God, but I don't really want to experience his presence. And so I don't know where you're at today. Listen, I, I don't know if you come in here in a good place. Maybe you're downcast. And maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're straying from God. But I would encourage you today, would you heed the warning of 2 Corinthians 7? Like, hey, repent and come back to God. And a step back to God is a step towards community. That's why we at this church, we're so big on connect groups. Listen, I don't know what your experience is or what you think when you think about gathering with a group of people and talking about God's word and talking about what's going on in your life, encouraging each other, praying for one another. Maybe that freaks you out. Well, I would say it's the greatest step of faith that you'll ever take. And we would love to be a church to get you connected to that. And you can sign up today. If you find me at the blue tent, I'd love to, to get you connected. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Maybe you're here today and you say, Billy, I'm not even a Christian. I have no relationship with God. I've never turned from my sin and turned to God. But today, the Spirit of God has been knocking on the door of my heart. And I want to be saved. I want to turn to God. I want God to be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you in the room, I want to know. I want to pray for you. We want to get you some resources. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? You say, Billy, that's me. Today's the day. I want to give my life to Christ. Anybody in this room, you say me. I'll give you a second. Anybody. Amen. Anybody else? You say me. So, Father, here's my prayer. God, would you meet, would you meet this man exactly where he's at? Father, with your grace, with your mercy, would you transform him? God, would you make him a new person? Father, for the rest of us in this room, God, I pray today would be a day that we'd be encouraged to walk in repentance. God, would, there, would, you, would you break us over our sin? God, would you show us areas of our life that need to change? And God, would you give us the courage and the faith to turn to you? God, you're not mad at us. As a father for a son, you just want what's best for us. So God, would we respond out of a knowledge of how much you love us and your plan for our life this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?